Verse 21. Then there will rise in his place a despicable person. This is the focus. To whom the royal honor has not been rightfully conferred. He will come on the scene in a time of prosperity and will seize the kingdom through deceit. He was succeeded by his brother Antiochus IV. So the son of Antiochus III. The contemptible person. The little horn of Daniel 7, 8, 8, 9 through 12, and 20 through 25. The throne rightly belonged to one of the sons of Seleucus IV. If you succeed your father, that's one thing. But if your brother succeeds your father and he dies, then it should go to the sons. So this is not a rightful taking of power. And he's going to do it through deceit. The eldest son, Demetrius, was imprisoned in Rome. So Lucas the fourth son, who should have been king, couldn't become king because he was imprisoned by the Romans. So Helidros seized the throne in the name of Demetrius. Bentichus IV, who was also imprisoned in Rome with an army, seized the throne for himself in the name of Demetrius, and Helidros has fled. He persuaded the leaders of Syria to allow him to rule since Demetrius, the eldest son of Seleucus IV, was being held hostage in Rome, and later his nephew, Antiochus, was killed. 22-24 Armies will rise, armies will be suddenly swept away in defeat before him, and both they and a covenant leader will be destroyed. After the entering into an alliance with him, he will behave treacherously, and he will ascend to power with only a small force. In a time of prosperity for one for the most productive areas of the providence, he will come and accomplish what neither his fathers nor his fathers accomplish. He will distribute the loot, spoils, and property to his followers, and he will devise plans against fortified cities, but not for long. Initially, Antiochus IV was successful in defeating the armies of Ptolemy VI. That's his success, but not for long. The prince of the covenant refers to the high priest of the Mosaic covenant. This is Onias III, the one we talked about last time. Onias III is the prince of the covenant. He's the high priest who's responsible for maintaining the Mosaic covenant. At the first, Antiochus IV allowed the Jews to have an internal self-government in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant. Onias III opposed the Hellenization of the Jews. Hellenization was the Greeks literally believed that their culture, their way of thinking, their language, their, their sports, their education, everything about them was literally absolutely superior to everyone in the world. And so one of the things that Alexander III did, as, long, as well as his successor, is they began to Hellenize the world that they control. Basically, they did everything in their power to force everybody to think and act like Greeks. They were so successful that America is more Greek in their culture than anything else. Our form of education is Greek. Our form of entertainment is Greek. Our form of music is Greek. Our government is Greek. They were so successful that we are basically a Greek culture more than we are anything else. Now, we're largely we're influenced by other cultures too, but the predominant way that we think and view the world is Greek. This Onias III opposed this because everything about Greek 
thinking and worldview goes completely contrary to the Bible in so many ways. And Ananias opposed this because they were losing their Jewish identity. To lose their Jewish identity is then to violate the Mosaic Covenant, which means to go back into exile again. And the Jews never wanted to do that again. And so he opposed this. In 172 B.C., Melanus, who was not of the high priestly family, bribed Antiochus IV to make him high priest. Ananias III discovered that Melanus had stolen gold items from the temple in order to pay that bribe. Onias III made a public protest about this, and Melanus killed him in 171 BC. The picture in these verses is of Antiochus IV supporting the Jews and then betraying them and making promises and breaking them. The angel makes it clear that Antiochus is more evil than those who came before him, but that Yahweh has limited his career and the damage would, that he would do. So Isaiah 28 specifically says that God will limit what Antiochus IV could do to Israel because they don't deserve to be punished in that kind of a way. However, he was extremely influential, but remember, all kings fall eventually. 25 through 28. He will rouse the strength, his strength and enthusiasm against the king of the south. That's the Greeks. Sorry, the Ptolemies. With a large army, the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to prevail because of the plans devised against him. Those who share the king's fine food will attempt to destroy him, and his army will be swept away. Many will be killed in battle. And these two kings, their minds filled with evil intentions, will trade lies with one another at the same table. But it will not succeed. For there is still an end at the appointed time. Then the king of the north will return to his own land with much property. His mind will be set against the holy covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. And he will take action and return to his own land. What's going on here? The young Ptolemy VI was now king over Egypt. And his courtiers encouraged him to retake Israel. Take it back. It's rightfully yours. Antiochus IV heard about it and marched his far superior army down to the Egypt and defeated their army in 169 BC. While Ptolemy VI was a, at battle, his courtiers declared his younger brother Ptolemy VII to be king. Now, how would you like that? Go into battle, defeat him, you can do it. And then he goes in battle, he starts getting defeated, and they're like, hey, we'll make your brother king. That's messed up. That's betrayal. Well, all this is messed up. Antiochus IV pretended to make a treaty with Ptolemy VI to put him back on the throne. But Ptolemy VII was set up as a king in Memphis, but not actually, but, but in actuality became the puppet of Antiochus IV. So Antiochus IV put him back in power over his brother, but just made him a puppet king so he could control him. But Antiochus IV control over Ptolemy VI, and Egypt was lost when Cleopatra II got her brothers, Ptolemy VI and Ptolemy VII, to reconcile and become co-regents. So, so far you've seen these Cleopatras are actually pretty amazing in the beginning. Like one is like, decide I'm going to be loyal to my husband rather than my dad's political intrigues. And the other one's like, hey, I need to get my brothers together and get them reconciled. Now, are their motives family or are their motives political power? Don't know phrase because an end will still come at the appointed time 
comes from Habakkuk 2.3 and shows that though one may be perplexed by what Yahweh is allowing this to happen, there's a divine appointed time for this end. So specifically Habakkuk is about Habakkuk saying, God, everywhere I look, there's violence and evil everywhere and I don't see you doing anything about it. And God says, don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians to destroy you all. And Habakkuk's like, what? That when I wanted you to do something about the evil, I wanted you to do something about the evil. Not send a more evil nation to punish an evil nation. How can you do that, God? And God says, because I can. I mean, that's basically his answer in Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk's pretty angry at God for not doing anything about this. And then when he gets his answer, he's really confused and horrified that God would use the Babylonians. And then God doesn't actually give him a reason and basically says, I can do what I want. But God then says, but the Babylonians will only last for a time and they too will be punished for what they do to you. Habakkuk then responds and says, though there's no wheat in the land and the wine is all dried up and I am drained of all my power and strength, I will hope and trust in the Lord because I know he's good. Habakkuk is like, I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like God's answer to the problem. I don't like how long he's going to take. And I don't like his answer, but this too will pass. And that's what's being referred to here is that his career will be limited because God has already promised this too will pass. This too will pass. Verse 29 through 30. At an appointed time, he will again invade the south. This is in Tychus the fourth. But this later visit will not turn out the way the former one did. The ships of Ketem will come against him, leaving him disinherited, and he will turn back and direct his indignation towards the Holy Covenant. Tychus IV decided to attack Egypt again, but when he arrived with his army, he was met in Alexandria by the Roman consul Gaius Populus Lanius. I don't know how to say that who had come with ships from Kittim, Cyprus. Gaius ordered him to leave, but Antiochus IV tried to stall. Gaius actually walks up to Antiochus IV and draws a circle in the sand around him and says, don't step out of that circle until you've decided what to do. You're either with us and you can go back with your tail between your legs because hail Rome, or you can oppose us and we will cut you down right here in this circle. And Tychus IV tucked his tail between his legs and went back home moping. This is where we get the idea of drawing a line in the sand. You know in those movies and they draw the line, they're like, are you with me? Are you with me? And, or against me? And everybody's like, ah. Oh. This is where it comes from. Not exactly how Hollywood has made it out to be or historical other events, but this is more of like die or live. But either way, you have no power. The way we use it now is like, we're going to defeat them. Okay, but this is where that idea comes from. Tychus goes back with his tail between his legs because he knows he can't stand against Rome. So the second half of verse 30. He will return in honor and those forsake the Holy Covenant. So when he went back, Jason, who was the first one who paid in Tychus IV in order to get the priesthood, the ousted priest heard that Antiochus IV had been killed. So Onias III is priest, and Jason says, I'll pay you Antiochus IV if you make me priest. And he did. But at least Jason was a descendant of Aaron, the high priesthood. 
Then Melena said, oh, if you can do that, I can do that. And he paid Antiochus IV to become priest, except he was not a Levite. And this is the first time he didn't have a Levite. When Jason heard about this, he spread a rumor that Antiochus got killed by Rome. Because what else would Rome do but kill you? So he spread the rumor. Because he's angry that he lost the priesthood, even though he took it from his brother in a wrong kind of way. Jerusalem with a thousand men and Melanus took refuge in the city. And though Jason killed many supporters of Tychus IV, he failed to take the city and eventually fled to Ammon, the neighboring nation. When Tychus heard of the revolt, he sent his army to crush it, not realizing it was already over. His general, Polyanus, pretended to come in peace, but attacked the city on the Sabbath, slaughtering thousands of people. The city walls were torn down, the citadel was built, and many pro-Seleucid Jews fought against their own people and served in the citadel. You know that spoiled little kid who like just does bad things and rebels, and mom and dad have had no control over them. And so finally mom and dad punishes this kid. And when that kid can't fight or yell and scream at mom and dad because mom and dad is too big and too strong and too scary and is all going to give a lot more punishments. What does spoiled little brat who can't control himself usually do with all that anger? Take it out on somebody else, either the walls in the house, the little siblings, or the dog and the cat, right? That's usually what happens. If you have all this pent up rage and anger and you can't go against mom and dad, you take it out on somebody else. That's all dictators are are overgrown little children who want to get what they want. And so Antiochus IV was angry. Meanwhile, Israel's rebelling against him. But the rebellion has already come to an end. But he doesn't know it. So he sends his general in to pretend that he's going to ally himself with the Jews. Instead, he takes all that fury and anger and rage from being defeated by Rome and he unleashes it on Israel. And one of the worst oppressions that Israel has ever experienced. He, this is where he basically goes in and violates the temple and he sets up the statue of Zeus and sacrifices a pig to it. He massacres people by the thousands. Supposedly he stacked bodies up on street corners as a reminder that you don't oppose me. Young, old, men, women, and children, everybody just got slaughtered that was out there. And Israel got devastated as a result of this because of his uncontrolled anger and rage. And so this is the beginning of the abomination of desolation. Verse 31, His forces will rise up and profane the fortified sanctuary, and stopping the daily sacrifices in its place, they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. We've already seen that in the previous chapter of Daniel with the 70 weeks and in the, um, the thing. And this is where it happens. The abomination of desolation. Verse 32 through 35. Then with smooth words, he will defile those who have rejected the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. These are who the wise among the people will teach the message. However, they will fall by the sword and by the flame, and they will be imprisoned and plundered for some time. And when they stumble, they will be granted some help, but many will unite with them deceitfully. And even some of the wise will stumble, resulting in their refinement, purification and cleansing until the time of the end for it's still for the appointed time. Many Jews compromise their beliefs. 
many Jews chose to sacrifice pigs to Zeus in order to save their own lives. They had already been given into Hellenization to begin with. So they were already willing to embrace this in many ways. And so the wise are those who truly understood the word of Yahweh. And they understand the danger of this cultural compromise. And they're willing to follow even if it means their own death. Their commitment will not be easy, but it will cause some who are not sincere to join them and give them a little help. So their commitment will be so inspiring despite the consequences of death that those who are kind of apathetic and are not really committed to God will be so inspired by this loyalty to Yahweh that they'll actually join their cause and make it a little bit more powerful. One day, a priest by the name of Mattathias, Hasimonian, from the town of Modin in Ephraim, refused to submit. Syntychus sent men, and every village was required to sacrifice a pig to this portable statue of Zeus. And most did. Mattathias, this is written about in two books called First and Second Maccabees. They're not biblical, as in they're not a part of our word of God, but they're very beneficial for understanding this time period and how Jews think, which is very beneficial for understanding the gospel culture, the culture of the gospels. Mattathias says that he burned with a zealous rage for Yahweh. And when he saw the Jews compromising, he grabbed one of the Jewish soldiers' swords and he pulled it out and he slaughtered everybody who compromised. He then took his sons, Jonathan and Judas and Simon, out into the woods and he began to launch a three-year guerrilla warfare against the Seleucids in order to retake back Israel. This would last for three and a half years. Eventually he died. He was succeeded by his son, Judas. Judas just hammered the Seleucids. He hammered them so successfully and so hard over and over and over again, he got the nickname Judas Maccabees, which means the hammer. And then he became the guerrilla leader of warfare. And eventually, after three and a half years, he's the one who's going to defeat the Seleucids, take the temple back, and cleanse it on December 16th, 164, which is Hanukkah. That's the beginning of the celebration of Hanukkah where all the Gentiles got massacred and the temple was cleansed. And that's what that celebrates. Antiochus IV then went and died. He fled to Persia and in 163 he died of being insane. He basically went insane. Which, rightfully so, you exact, exact that much evil on people and that's going to mess you up. That's going to mess you up. You can't be that evil and do those things and not that bother you. So that's the end of Antiochus the fourth. Now, this is the main focus. Now, why is God going through all this detail? He's going through all this detail so the Jews can see what is happening. When it begins to happen, there will be no doubt who this is. Wow, God said this, and God said this, and God said this, and it's happening, boom, 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 to the point that they'll be able to predict the next actions. But it also means that they'll know that this will come to an end and as they see every little detail fulfilled, their confidence that God will get, take them through it will increase more and more and more. Think about it. If God had completely in every little detail predicted everything about COVID-19 and how our presidents and governors would react and then continue to predict how it would come to an end and how we would get through it, 
every single time you watch the news, you wouldn't be depressed like everything is going to down the drain. You would actually be gaining more and more confidence and wow for who God is as every little thing begins to happen exactly the way he said it does. And that's what God is doing. In the darkest moment of Israel's history, God is also giving them something to hold on to of hope as they're wowed by these details. And that's the main point. And so what can be feeling overwhelming with lots of historical names and dates and events actually would be very inspiring to the Jews to help them hold on through one of the darkest moments of their life. Verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every deity, and he will utter presumptions, presumptuous things against God of gods. He will succeed until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been decreed must occur, and he will not respect the gods of his fathers, not even the God loved by women. He will not respect any God, and he will elevate himself above them all. What he will honor is a God of fortresses, a God his fathers did not acknowledge. He will honor with gold, silver, valuable stones, and treasured commodities. He will attack mighty fortresses aided by a foreign deity. To those who recognize him, he will grant considerable honor and he will place them in authority over many people and he will parcel out the land for a price. This is total corruption. This is focusing more on his character and how deprived he is. So the general statement in Daniel 11.36 is filled out in Daniel 11.37-39. through 39. So Daniel 36 makes a statement, and then we're given details that focus on that. This is his religious attitudes and policies. So this is what he's going to be like religiously and politically. The opening phrase links back to the foreshadowing of Titus IV and the figures of Alexander III. He will magnify himself. The point is that, like them, he was a man of arrogance who would meet an untimely and unexpected death that had been decreed by Yahweh. The verb for he exalts himself is used in the Bible to describe men who see themselves autonomous and oppose Yahweh in his will. Antiochus named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. He made himself a god. He had coins minted with the god Apollo on one side and himself on the other side, saying that he is the same thing as that god. And then in the inscription, it said, King Antiochus, God manifests, victory bringer. But what Daniel emphasizes here is not just Antiochus' fourth hubris, but that it was directed toward Yahweh. And not just Yahweh, but he even opposes his own people's traditions. It says that he will magnify himself above God, but he won't even respect his own father's gods. He actually disrespected every single culture. His own culture of his own people, he magnified himself above it, and he disrespected Yahweh. This is absolute narcissism and total disregard for everybody that he only cared about him and his own power. The Seleucids has been given favor to Apollo, but Antiochus IV elevated himself with Apollo's, Apollo and gave preference to Zeus. No one emphasized Zeus as greatly as he did. And he even declared himself Apollo as in replacing him. The one that the women love could mean Tammuz, Adonais. This is in Ezekiel 18.14. 
There was a particular god that the women at this time period worshipped more than any other god. It was a cult of women. And Tammuz is the idol that was erected in the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8 that God showed it to Ezekiel and says, see that? That is detestable. Could be that that god has been brought back and that it's being worshipped as well. This shows contempt for all gods. This is just absolute contempt for everything. And this is the character that God is emphasizing here. Verses 40 through 45. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and a large armada of ships. He will invade lands passing through them like an overflowing river. Then he will enter the beautiful land, and many will fall, but these will escape Edom, Moab, and the Ammonite leadership. He will extend his power against other lands, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will have control over the hidden stores of the gold and the silver, as well as all the treasuries of Egypt. Libyans and Ethiopians will submit to him, but reports will trouble him from the east and north, and he will set out in tremendous rage to destroy and wipe out many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas toward the beautiful holy mountain, but he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The story concludes with verses 40 through 45 of the king of the north will be beaten back by another attack from the king of the south and invade Israel and conquer Egypt and set up camp between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea before meeting his death. However, none of this corresponds to history. This is the one place where everything becomes really foggy. You can see the question marks here. We don't know exactly who is being talked about because it doesn't seem to match up with history in any kind of way of this is Antiochus' the fourth demise. There's no record of him attacking Egypt again. There's no record of him failing. There's no record of him setting up a camp in Mediterranean. So we don't know exactly what's going on. Many scholars believe that Daniel 11 was written in 165 BC, so all the previous verses would be recorded history and things the author predicted. So some scholars say, hey, it's about this time in Tychus's life that the Bible is being written in 165 AD, right before Tychus's the fourth death. So they were really accurate when it came to everything that led up to this point, but because they finished the story out before Tychus the fourth died, that they got it wrong because this isn't happened and they didn't know it was going to happen this way not going to happen this way because they don't know the future and this just proves that this is not prophecy of the future because can, nobody can do that and these verses prove that they can't do that like I said one of the strengths for the Bible being written before this all happens is the fact that the Hebrew Bible was canonized in the 200s way before this time period and Daniel's in that canon. So that points to the fact that Daniel was written before these events. For the, so that view doesn't cut it in any kind of way. And plus, that's an argument on the assumption that this can't happen. That's a horrible argument to make. There is no reason, too, that the author would be this precise and this detailed and then just suddenly start making things up. People don't do that. Most modern-day evangelical scholars reject the view, this view and believe that Daniel 11 is predictive, but that the prophecy switches to the distant future of the coming Antichrist. So they would say, oh yeah, this is why it's vague, because it's talking about the Antichrist. 
So then they would kick back and say, well, even though it's very clear that it's in Titus the fourth in verse 36, there, there's a tone that changes there. So that must be the, the beginning of the Antichrist talk. The problem is there's nothing in Daniel that's hinted towards a extreme future in all these chapters. Two, there's nothing in the Second Testament gets this detail. The book of Revelation is more detailed than Daniel. So it doesn't make sense that Daniel would be more detailed than Revelation, just this teeny little part. That doesn't seem to fit in these kind of way. This is also a very abrupt switch. Like God is getting very detailed and very precise about very specific years and events. And he's literally going year by year by year by year. And then he skips like 4,000, 5,000, six years into the future, however long it will be before the Antichrist comes, and starts talking about that with no reference to a switch that doesn't make sense most likely this is continuing the summary of verses 36 and it's merely recapitulating the events so rather than seeing these as new events that are going to come then verse 36 is a summary of the character of Antiochus the fourth and then these verses 40 through 45 is a summary of his career and if you look at it as a summary, it does match up with his life because he did attack Egypt and he did set up camp along the Mediterranean between the two. And so it's probably not a historical, this is what happens next, but that this is just all summary of what has happened. And that's not uncommon. The Bible very regularly gives you details and then goes back and summarizes it and somewhat abruptly. That is very known for it. And so this seems to make sense. These final verses then could also be a general picture of what all kings would be like. So another way is that the reason it gets more general and more summarized here is that God is then summarizing what all kings are like. So this is now saying, well, there will be many antichrists because there have been many antichrists, according to 1 John chapter 4. And so that's a strong possibility.